So um, God's sovereignty is a term uh, that we use loosely, right? Uh, when things are going our way, mostly, right? How many times have you ever heard, oh, I'm just so blessed this week. God has done this for me and God has done that. How many times do you hear people using that term when something horrible is happening? Okay, all right. The truth is that we were called to suffer. Suffer for a cause greater than ourselves. The sovereignty of God is the Christian teaching that God is the supreme authority and all things are under his control. So God is supreme authority and everything is under his control, which means all things good and bad are under his control. The best example of this in the Bible, I think, is the book of Job. It's a book that nobody really wants to read because a lot of horrible things happen to Job, right? Um, But there's this little part in the beginning of the book where we learn that Job is a devout man, right? He's a devout loving of of God, right? He and his family follow the commandments. They do everything they can, uh, and they're blessed for it. Um, And so what happens is the adversary, as it's titled there, or Satan, as we know it, but I like the word the adversary. It sounds so much better. Uh, He comes to God and basically makes an appeal to him and says, hey, this guy Job, (laughs) I want to see what I can do with him. And they they have, it's not a game, but he he asks for permission, right, to test Job. And God says, okay, but you can't kill him, right? That's the, the okay, right? You can't kill him. You can test him. You can put him through any trials, any tribulations you want, but you can't kill him. So God has allowed this to happen to Job because he knows that Job is not going to falter, right? He knows that through all of this, Job will keep the faith, right? Which is what, in the end, he does, right? He knows this. It's part of God's sovereign plan. So Job loses his possessions, he loses his family, he loses his wife, all of them die. His family comes and basically curses him and says, you know, what have you done? Why are you so forsaken? And what are, basically, more or less, why are you bringing this around us, right? These curses that you've brought onto yourself, why are they near us? And then God steps in, and then he tells Job, look, you know, I've done things that you cannot understand, spoke the world into motion, right? Created nothing from form and void into, out of a word, right? Something that we, as humans, will never be able to totally understand. We try and try and try to rationalize it. We come up with more and more ideas, right? Like Stephen Hawking's idea of the black hole and infinite parallels where there's no beginning or no end, right? It still doesn't solve the, <laughs> the equation. None of that will solve it. It doesn't solve any of that. And our human minds cannot comprehend that. And they weren't intended to. God is sovereign and he has a plan. And sometimes that sovereignty makes us suffer. Sometimes it it exalts us. Sometimes it puts us in places where we are immensely blessed. And sometimes it puts us in places where we are brought down really, really low. Right? And so in this chapter, verses 5, we're going to see the apostles, the first few who are taking this message, really... uh, getting met met with uh, pretty much like as much opposition as they can. And so, first and foremost, I want to preface this portion with something that Jesus said. It's in Mark 15. Uh, It's verses 5 through 13. If you want to um, turn there, you can. It says, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars... And rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. 
There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver over to death, and father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all namesake, for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus said that, right? Jesus told his disciples, you will be persecuted. You will suffer. You will be delivered over by your brother. You will be delivered over by the people who are closest to you because that is the nature of humanity. Humanity is at enmity with God. It is an enemy of God. And so naturally, humans will turn over humans. Verse 9 of that passage says, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. This gets fulfilled in this passage that we're about to read. And it's still being fulfilled today. It's still happening. So what do we know? Let's remember what we read first. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The key word there is his purpose. Uh, because it doesn't make sense to us always. <laughs> it leads us down paths and trials and tribulations that do not make sense to us. But he has a purpose. And we're going to see a little bit more about that now. So let's turn to um, Luke 5. We're going to start in chapter 17. I'm going to read through portions of it and kind of break it down so that we understand what exactly it is that's happening in this passage. So let's start in 17. So remember, this is right after the church has just had this this uh, amazing signs and wonders. People are getting healed, right? So now the high priests, are, their attention is on them because you can't deny the healings or the, the miracles that are happening. And so it says in verse 17, when the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. We'll stop right there. So, first and foremost, we see that the opposition is coming from the leadership of not just the nation of Israel, but from the leaders that God has instilled, right? Like these same people, the Sadducees, they are the high priests, right? Uh, we talked about the Sanhedrin, all those things before. The Sadducees are a group or a party of people within Israel, right? And they believe a certain set of things. If you remember from Luke, uh, specifically Luke 20, uh, verse 27, they do not believe in the resurrection. They do not believe in the possibility of a resurrection. The idea that someone could be resurrected from death is appalling to them, right? So here these guys are preaching in the synagogues about someone, first and foremost, that, that they killed, and he's resurrected, and there's healing happening. Guys, we got to stop this, right? <laughs> this is an abomination to the way we think. We have to, we have to do something about this. So they rose up, right? And they're filled with jealousy. Why are they filled with jealousy? Because this is garnering so much attention in the synagogue. I mean, come on, you've been in the synagogue for 500 plus years. 
haven't seen very many signs and wonders and miracles, and then all of a sudden, there's signs, wonders, and miracles happening, and the reason is because these people are telling that someone has been resurrected, the Messiah, the promised one, has come, and I, I didn't notice it. And worse, we were the ones responsible for killing him. So the Sadducees are a little upset, right? A little antsy about what is happening. So they arrest the apostles and they put them in public prison. This is key, right? This is pivotal, right? Not only did they arrest them, not only did they apprehend them, they put them in a place in which everyone who walks through the temple can see that they are arrested. The Sadducees are making a point, right? The last time, uh, Markello talked about this, the last time they, they arrested them or they pulled them aside and they just kind of reprimanded them, told them, hey, look, don't preach in his name anymore, guys. Don't do that. Uh, but now they're saying, no, we're going we're gonna to make a point to snuff this out. So we're going to put them in public prison. So everyone who goes in the temple to pray, they're going to see these guys standing in this big prison-like cell, right? What are they going to do now? How are they going to get out of this? And so in verse 19, it says, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So, verse 19, an angel of the Lord, right, just appears. Luke has a thing about angels, right? Uh, an angel appeared to Mary. There's angels and signs and wonders all in Luke and Acts, right? But an angel appears to them and opens the prison doors and lets them out. And then specifically charges them with this. Go and teach the ways of this life. Uh, the, the Greek translation of this life is kind of a reference to the Christian movement at the moment. Um, they had different names, this life, the way. They weren't called Christians. Right? They were, it was just a, a movement. So this life is the way of salvation, specifically how you got salvation, which is through resurrect, the resurrected Christ, right? The irony. So the, the, the angel has come and said, you are to go preach about the resurrection, which is the one thing that the Sadducees do not like. And then it says in verse 21, and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. I think what's most interesting about this verse, right, is if I were let out of prison, if there's a prison break, right? My natural intuition would be to run, right? My natural intuition would be to get out of there, to say, no, man, I'm not, I'm not going back in there. They're going to kill me or arrest me or put me in for a longer period of time. Uh, but they don't do that. They listen to the charge that they were given knowing what will come later. And so they go into the city at daybreak because at this time period, the only time that people would be in there is at daybreak. So they wait to daybreak, they go in, and they start teaching back to the same place that they were just arrested from. So there's something that this church understood, right? These guys, these apostles understood, and that's that they must endure confidently. They had confidence in their faith. They had confidence it's one thing to see an angel. It's another to know for certain that the Holy Spirit is working and moving inside of you. In Hebrews 10, verses 35 through 36, it says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Right? So these guys had confidence. This confidence built endurance and prepared them to do what was going to come next. They knew that they were going to be persecuted. What we're seeing here is this picture of God's sovereignty playing out. First and foremost, he allowed the apostles 
to be arrested, right? He allowed the apostles to be put into a public prison, to be made a mockery of, right? Why? So he could reverse it. It's a miracle in and of itself. We talked about miracles of healing and miracles where people were talking in other languages. This is a miracle. These guys got out of prison. The angel let them out, and no one knows why. And they didn't escape. So here in verse 21, or it's 22, sorry, let's continue. It says, now when the high priest came, so here we go. Uh, the high priest is back in town the next day. And those who were with him, they called together the council all the synod of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. So here's what they did. The Sadducees have said, we're going to make a public mockery of these people by putting them in prison, and rather than punishing them today, we're going to punish them tomorrow, which will give us enough time to get the entire council and the entire synod of the people of Israel here, right? So they're calling the entire synod. Think of, uh, think of like our nation, right? Washington, D.C. We have senators, we have representatives, they're from every state, right? But they're in our nation's capital. So they call together a meeting with all of these people. So all of Israel is now represented. All of Israel's leadership is now represented in this moment. And their intention is to bring harm to the apostles. And the irony is that God flips it. He says, no, you will be made a mockery of, Right? And so in verse 22, it says, But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. It's a very curious thing, right? <laughs> the, do- <laughs> the guards are still there. The doors are still locked, right? And no one noticed these people escaping or being let out, Right? Also, interestingly enough, no one noticed the angel that appeared to the apostles, right? So here in verse 24, it says, Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told him, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So what happens? The the chief priest, once again, the chief priest and the guards, they're all perplexed. This word means greatly confused. They don't understand why, what, they can't, they can't wrap their heads around it. Specifically the Sadducees who don't really believe in signs, wonders, and miracles. They don't really believe in the resurrection. So for them, this is just like blowing their mind right now. They're like, what is going on? How can we stop this? This is chaos, right? This is, cha- this is chaos. What is happening? Please do something about this. But the guards, the captain and the officer, he, he goes and he apprehends them, but not by force. He brings them without beating them or shackling them Rather, he brings them willingly, which is a reminiscent of how Jesus went when he went to his death. He didn't fight. He went. Why? Because he was confident in his faith. He was confident. He knew what was going to happen. He knew God's will was going to play out. He knew he was going to die, right? But he also knew that it was for God's good. And so they went with them, unafraid, enduring confidently, And so we see this picture here. We're getting this idea that the apostles understood that endurance was going to lead to something. And while they may not understand God's plan and they may not understand the total total idea of how it will happen, they know one thing for certain. 
In the beginning of Acts, Jesus told them, you will be my witness, right? He said, you will be my witness. He didn't tell them how, but he did tell them they will be a witness. They will be a witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and then all of the nations. And these are the events that will force them into spreading out. It's the beginning of this spreading, right? And so they know for a fact that what they are doing is right in the eyes of God, unlike the others who have yet to figure this out just yet. So in verse 27, it says, And when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. It's interesting how these things are held in the eyes of the beholder, right? The Sadducees were the leading party, ultimately, at the time period that Jesus was put to death. So naturally, it is with charge that they would say that they are the ones who are responsible for Christ's death. And so they say, look, you filled Jerusalem with this teaching that we don't agree with. Your theology is not good, and you filled it, and you want to bring this man's blood upon us? The key words here are this man not acknowledging that he is God, not acknowledging that he is a deity, not acknowledging that he is the Savior, right? They're downplaying him and his blood upon us, which is basically an idiom, which means we, you're saying that we, we murdered this guy? Really? We, we murdered this guy. We murdered and resurrected the guy that you're claiming is the Messiah. It's blasphemy to them to hear these words. But Peter, being ever so bold in the book of Acts, it says in verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man, than men. There's a lot being said here in this very small sentence, right? The Sadducees were the leading party of Israel. Therefore, they were the ones who were intended to interpret the law, which means that they were the ones who were supposed to basically speak on behalf of God. We were supposed to listen to these people, right? They are the high priest. Henceforth, his words should be taken as a direction from Christ, or not from Christ, sorry, from God, the old God of the Torah, right? Um, and what... Peter says is, we must obey God rather than men, which means that we must obey Almighty, and you don't have authority. Your authority has been stripped from you. You may have earthly power, however, we have assurance that this God is real. And so he's building this case against the Sadducees, but he's also doing something in confidence, right? Confident that what he's doing is rest assured that he is right. So in 30-32, it says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so in the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. There is a lot being said in this. First and foremost, uh, the first line, verse 30. The God of our fathers, he's leveling with these people. He's saying, look, the God of our fathers, these people, we are Jewish, we are of this heritage, right? This is our God. This is who we should follow. Raise Jesus, right? So this man that we are claiming died, he raised him. Now, if you're a Sadducee, that is offensive, <laughs> Again, let's go back to this idea. They do not believe in the possibility of resurrection. In fact, actually in Luke 20, like I was talking about, that is where they called him out on this whole 
conundrum of resurrection, like who's, who'd be married to who and all that kind of stuff, and Jesus just kind of is like, you don't understand. You're, no. You shut it down, right? And so the God of our fathers has raised Jesus, which means he has exalted him above all of humanity, which means he's exalted him above the high priest, and he's exalted them above all the Sadducees and everyone. And Jesus is now that mediator. And then he goes on the offensive and says, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now this is a direct reference to Deuteronomy, right? Where someone who is cursed will, will be hung on a tree. Someone worthy of death is cursed and hung on a tree. So now he's saying, look, you killed him on, like, on the wrong grounds. He wasn't worthy of death, but you chose to. And then in verse 31, he says, God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior, the key word there, savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So even in this moment where he is accusing the leaders of killing this person, killing Jesus, right, he's also giving them a path to repentance. He's saying, look, all you have to do is just acknowledge that he's leader, he's savior, he's Lord, he's almighty, right? They're confident in this. They know that this is, this is the truth. But this is not what they want to hear. And then Peter goes just a little further and really digs it in deep. And in 32 he says, And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You only get the Holy Spirit when you're in obedience with God, when you're walking with God, right? Right? Peter is saying to this group of people, the leaders of the nation, you are not obeying God. You're persecuting him. You're persecuting us. And so what Peter understands and what the apostles understand is that we are to have peace in God, right? We can be rest assured that if we have the Holy Spirit, then God is on our side, right? Romans 5, 1 through 5 says, um, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So if we understand God's sovereignty, there's two things we have to get so far. So if you're writing things down, you're taking notes. One, we must endure confidently. We must be confident in our endurance. We must know that when the Holy Spirit is with us, we can be confident and we can rest assured on those promises, right? And then we must have peace in the Holy Spirit right? There is a passage in Luke 6. Uh, this is 22 through 23. And it says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. I want to make this clear. This is on the account of the Son of Man. This isn't just because people hate you because you're a jerk, right? <laughs> if you're a jerk and, and you're just being a jerk all the time, that's not, you're, you're not working with God on this one, right? But if people hate you because you're doing God's work on the account of the Son of Man, then you can le lean into it and go to this next verse for here. It says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. 
For so their fathers did to the prophets. We must know that when we suffer for Christ, great, our eternal reward will be. We will be in the presence of God Almighty. This thought gave this early church, right, that, that, that their suffering here was only for this present time. It's not worth worrying about. We're going to be blessed eternally in heaven. So they endure in confidence, and they have peace in the Holy Spirit. Now God, working through his sovereign ways, uses a, a person in this next passage that you wouldn't expect, right, that you really wouldn't, wouldn't expect to come up and stand up and defend these people. If you'll remember correctly, the Pharisees were the other party. So we have Sadducees and we have Pharisees, right? Uh, they both interpret the law slightly differently. Uh, the Sadducees are, are literalist, as in they believe that everything is literal. Like, we, there's no resurrection. We don't see it anywhere. We're not going to take any outside interpretation from prophets. We're not going to read any of that. This is the Torah. That's it, right? Uh, whereas the Pharisees are more likely to look at other books, right? They're more likely to understand the words of Isaiah or some of those other people. And they're a little more open to the idea of a resurrection, right? They may not be open to Jesus. However, they are open to the idea of resurrection. This is their biggest opposing factor. Now, there's different things, too. Uh, the Sadducees were generally people of immense wealth, right? Uh, they had more power. They had wealth. They kind of bought their way into the Roman Empire, essentially, if you will. Uh, and so they believed rather than um, being resurrected or having eternal life, that having earthly possessions and being blessed by God was essential, that you could pass it down and you would essentially live through your lineage, right? Uh, whereas the Sadducees were of a middle class, maybe lower class birth, and they, they believed sort of in this idea of, of eternal life. They wanted, they wanted that. Uh, they just didn't believe in, in Jesus. So we have two factions who have been called together and are at war. It's kind of like Democrats and Republicans, right? Uh, constantly at war. They believe in the law, but they have different interpretations of what the law means to them because they're human, and they don't understand the law, right? And so here we go in verse 33. We're going to see that this one individual who is trusted and, and everybody respects him stands up and says something immensely profound. In verse 33, it says, When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So don't forget, Peter has just charged them with the murder of a man, claimed that the resurrection is real, and also claim that the Holy Spirit is only given to the, power, the people who obey him. And by all those checkboxes, they are not it, right? So they are enraged and want to kill him. Amen. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, I'm pretty sure I got that right. I listened to like four different YouTube videos on how to say it, and it was kind of Gamaliel, Gamaliel, uh, one of those two. Anyway, not important. What is important is what he says. A teacher of the law held in honor by all the people. Here we go. This guy, they are like, he knows the law. We're going to listen to him. He stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So he's like, look, guys, it's getting heated in here. There's a lot going on. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's put these guys outside. Interestingly enough, they put them outside, and they, they, still don't run. <laughs> they still don't run away, right? Like, they're outside, and they're like, oh, we'll hang around. We'll see what happens. Um, and in verse 35, and he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. And in verse 36, for before these days, Thudius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. 
So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. And I'll stop right there. Those two people that are mentioned, um, you can, if you really want to look it up, you can read more about them. There's a man named Josephus who is a historian who took all into account all of this and all the revolutions that happened. Jesus was not the first revolutionary to come. The difference is that Jesus was God, right? Uh, So the difference was what all these other efforts by man had failed. However, with Jesus, it wasn't going to fail. And we can attest to this too because we're here still reading this book 2,000 years later. Um, Whereas, do you hear anything from Judas, uh, the Galilean, who wrote, no, don't think so. Uh, (laughs) So so he's making this good point. He's saying, look, guys, these people tried to do the same thing, right? They tried to rose up. They started a revolution, and, you know, the guy died, and then everything was fine. Like, no, we're all back to normal now, right? And then he says this really profound part of this line. This starts in verse 38. It says, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Those are harsh words, right? So first and foremost, I want to I kind of break this down because I, I, I just I remember the first time I read that, I'm thinking, wow, that's cool, yeah. And then the more times I read it over and over again, I'm like, wow, that's really deep. Like, they probably wanted to kill this guy. Um, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. What is he admitting about humanity? That our efforts have finitude to them. They will die. <laughs> All of our efforts will die. All of our efforts will fail. We can build the biggest building. We can build the Tower of Babel, but it will still be destroyed, right? We can build immense wealth, but it will be destroyed. We can build the greatest nation in the world, but it will still come to ruin. A prime example is Rome, right? He's saying, look, if it's of man, it'll fail. It's just that simple. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. It sounds simple, really. You know, he's basically saying, look, if this is really of God, <laughs> then you're not going to be able to do anything about it. You can try, you can kill this guy, or maybe punish this guy, or you can stop talking to them, but God will find his way, his sovereign way of making this work for his good. That's the whole point of this passage, right? It doesn't matter. He'll use someone else. You can kill them. He'll use someone else. You can throw them into the sea. You, can, you know what I mean? A prime example is Jonah, right? Jonah tried to run away from God. Jumped on a ship, right? He jumps on a ship and says, I'm not going to do this. The seas start shaking and turning into violent waves. And it's only around the boat that he's on. And so the people are like, whose God is responsible for this? And Jonah's sleeping. And they're like, no, this got to be this dude. And he's like, you know what? I'd rather die than do what God told me to do. So just throw me into the sea. (laughs) So he gets thrown into the sea. And what happens? He doesn't die. A whale eats him. He sits in a whale's stomach for three days, right? And then shoots him back out. And only then is he ready and prepared to go do what he was told to do, which was simple. It's just go preach this message that nobody wanted to hear, right? (laughs) Yeah, right? Go, Go preach this message to these people that don't want to hear it. (laughs) <laughs> which I guess is, no, I, I get it. He goes and does it, and then he's mad. <laughs> that It doesn't turn out how he wants. It doesn't turn out how he thought it was going to turn out. Jonah is a conflicted character, that is for sure, in the Bible. But he is a prime example of God's sovereignty. He's this idea that he is just simply a pawn in God's, in God's greater picture that we don't all understand. And so, if it's of God, we won't be able to overthrow it. And not only that, you might be found opposing God. 
which is horrendous to even think about, right? The, the high priests, the leaders of the church, the leaders of the institution that is supposed to lead people to God, opposing God? That's blasphemy. And so Gamaliel is pointing out this point. He's saying, look, you know, I've studied the law. Let's just let this thing fizzle out for itself. Interestingly enough about this character is he isn't interested in saying whether or not he is going to join the party. I mean, he's not going to join the Christians. He's just saying, look, I'm, I'm, just, I'm cool with just sitting on the sidelines and seeing how this thing plays out. He probably thought it was going to fizzle out, but it doesn't. And so what, can we, what, what do we know then, right? We have endurance, when we endure confidently, we have peace in the Holy Spirit, and then we have to rejoice that God is for us, right? So in Romans 8, 31, sorry for all the race, uh, uh, Romans references, I've just been reading a lot of Romans lately. It says, uh, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? How many times have you heard that when you were a kid? God's for me. Who can be against me? Right? Uh, but we go a little further here <laughs> in this church and in this passage. In verse 32, so if, you're, if you want to read through this, we're going to read 31 through 39. It's Romans 8, Romans 8, 31 through 39. And it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're rejoicing in. We rejoice that God is for us, right? And if God is for us, then no one can overthrow us. They can kill us. They can separate us. They can take us apart. They can put us in prison. They can put a muzzle on our mouths. They can take away our Bibles. They can take away our scriptures. They can take away laws that give us protections, but they will never be able to stop God's sovereignty. And they will never be able to separate us from his love. When we talk about what is God's good, right? What is his good? What is his end goal? It's that we will be with him in presence, in love. Look at the garden in the very beginning. Adam and Eve were created to be in the presence of God, but through an act of defiance, they separated all of us from God. And then in Revelations, his whole point is to bring us back in to the fold of God by bringing a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, so that we can all be together. That's the whole point. Nothing can separate us from that love. So we must rejoice that God is for us. So in verse 40, it says, When they had called in the apostles, they bring them back in. They've decided what they're going to do. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus 
and let them go. And then something interesting happens here in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. These individuals said, we're going to keep going regardless of what the world tells us. I think a lot about our current situation our current world, America in particular, it feels like a lot of sometimes our religious freedoms are being potentially challenged, right? Or maybe that we're being put on into a place where we won't be able to speak truth. But no one can separate us from it. The truth still exists. The truth will always exist. God's love will always exist. And no matter what they do to us, they cannot stop or overthrow it. In verse 40, the apostles are called back in, and then they beat them, right? And charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So in just this passage alone, they've been imprisoned and publicly shamed, and now they've been beaten. Uh, most people think that this is the 40 lashes minus one. So each one of them would have suffered 39 lashes with a three-pronged leather calf split leather whip, right? Which, um, by most reports, would have left someone almost to the point of death from bleeding out, being whipped and abused, just like Jesus was, right? Almost to the point of death. Not quite death, but almost. And yet, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. We have a problem in our world right now where we have been taught that God, it's very legalistic, very similar to the Old Testament. We've been taught that God only wants to bless us or only wants to give us nice things. And if he's not giving us those things or he's not blessing us, then he is not doing his good work. And that is a false doctrine. You guys may dislike what I have to say about that, but it is the truth. God can use blessings, but God can also use suffering. These people suffered, and they suffered immensely. In the next few passages we'll read over the next couple of weeks, we'll see that one person even loses their life for the call of God. We can't say that that's not God's will because it was God's will. God needed it to happen. Why? Because they end up being dispersed out of Jerusalem, and they move into Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so sometimes our suffering is for God's good. It sucks. <laughs> it sucks to suffer. However, God's sovereignty assures us that nothing can separate us from that love. And so that if we endure in confidence, right, as it said in Hebrews, and have peace in the Holy Spirit, and if we rejoice that God is for us, then like the apostles, we will know that he's with us and that we won't be separated from his love, even through suffering, even through times and trials. Before I go any further, I want you to think about your own life, right? Think about the trials and the tests of faith that maybe you've gone through. Maybe some of you have had a lot of surgery, or maybe some of you have had medical conditions. Maybe some of you have been through immense poverty, right? And I want you all to think of them not as a place in which God is not working in you, but rather as a place where he can work through you, right? He can work through our suffering. 
Maybe you were put in that hospital for a time and place to be a witness to someone who was there. You know? (laughs) Maybe you were without for a while so that when you had, you could give more. It's all for God's purpose. He has a plan for all of us. And it doesn't make sense. But it's not for us to make sense. Just as he told Job, I speak of things that you do not understand. We can't figure it all out. But what we do know is that God's love is for us. And it will carry us through. And so we must rejoice even in suffering, just like the apostles. We must rejoice with the saints and constantly keep that thought that God will bring us through this. And through our endurance, we will be brought into his love. I'm going to read you a few more passages, and then we'll uh, close this out. So if you turn to Genesis, the book of Genesis will go old school. Chapter 50, the very last chapter of Genesis, right before Exodus. There's a passage in here. How many of you guys have heard of the story of Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat? Does anybody remember that play? Right? Donnie Osmond. (laughs) Technicolor dream. What a silly name, right? Like, what are they thinking? As a filmmaker, I'll tell you, as someone who has made films, who's gone to school for film, Technicolor was a three-strip color process, which only means that there are three colors that show up. When you combine them together, they make what looks like a palette of more than that. So just calling it Technicolor is silly because it had more colors than three, right? Just silly. That's just a note for anyone who is curious about that. Um, So Joseph, as we all know, is someone who uh, goes through some serious trials, man. He gets this dream, and he has... He just can't keep it to himself. He has this dream that his brothers will bow down to him. His wheat will, their wheat will bow down to his wheat, right? That's basically the idea. And in that dream, he's telling them, look, you're going to serve me at some point in time. And the brothers do not like that. In fact, they hate it. And they already resent him anyway because he's the father's favorite with the Technicolor dream coat, right? <laughs> so he's the father's favorite. And so they decide, look, let's just kill him. Let's get rid of him. Whatever. We don't need him. Bye, Joseph. But something happens in this story where Joseph doesn't get killed. Instead, he gets thrown into a a pit and then gets sold into slavery and then ends up in this whole course of events, right? Ends up somehow in in a governor's house and then his wife accuses him of uh, something slanderous, adultery, and he, that he didn't commit. He ends up in prison, is there for a while, does, reveals a prophecy, and then somehow ends up in the good grace of Pharaoh and basically gets exalted to the, to the right hand of Pharaoh. Just kind of like, it's like, it's like Jesus, right? Like Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the main leader of the land. Uh, so here we have a type and shadow here. So Joseph gets exalted, and he's in control over everything, and he has a plan, and he enacts that plan. And afterwards, all the people are saved, right? People are good. And so in, verse, in chapter 50, we're going to look at verse 20. Um, something happens before all this. I'm going to explain it. His brothers have come, and unknown to them, they have met with Joseph. They don't know that it's Joseph. But they're, they're looking for the hand of the king, and they're asking for some provisions for them and their father because the land is desolate. And so... Uh, Joseph immediately recognizes them as those dudes and puts them through a series of trials and tribulations, whatever. But then in the end, all is brought well together. 
But there's something that happens after their father dies. The brothers think, we need to come up with a plan so Joseph doesn't persecute us, right? Like, we are outside of his graces. And so they write a letter, and they give him this letter, and it's basically saying, look, hey, don't, don't persecute us. Your fa- the father said so. Uh, you know, we're, we're really good dudes. We didn't mean to, you know, throw you in a pit or sell you to slavery and pretend that you were dead and all that kind of stuff. And so then in verse 20, Joseph says to them, starts in verse 19 actually, do not fear for am I in the place of God? Joseph, the man who's been exalted to the right hand of the king, recognizes that he is not God. He's not in the place of God. And then he says, as for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good. We'll just leave it there. He goes on to talk about how they saved many people's lives because of their evil. God allowed and put into motion the events that happened into Joseph's life. And it built endurance and it built character. And what happened was he saved many. But it was God's sovereignty that put it into place. And through immense suffering, he wound up in this place. And here he is forgiving his brothers of their sins, even though most of us would be tempted not to. And so, we will close where we started. In Romans 8, 28, again, we'll read this one more time. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, and for those who are called according to his purpose. And so just like Joseph and just like the apostles, God has called us to a purpose. He laid it out there in verse 8 of chapter 1 of Acts, where we will be his witness, right? And he doesn't say how we will do it. He doesn't say what persecution or what trials or what exaltation we will go through. But either way, that is his purpose. That's his will, to reunite humanity with him and to be a part of his sovereign grace. And so, we have to endure. We have to know that God intends everything for his good. We have to have peace in the Holy Spirit. We have to rejoice that God is for us. And we must endure confidently, even through times of tribulations. And so this morning, as we approach the moment where we take the Lord's Supper... Let's just think about the suffering that he endured for us, right? All these things would not be possible if God did not do the most scandalous thing possible and give up his son. We forget that he suffered as well. Not just Jesus, but God suffered. He suffered that day by allowing his only son to die on a cross, to turning his face away, to watching what was happening. And so we have to understand that sometimes we are put in a situation in which we do not understand. But God has a plan for us, and if we hold fast to his word, and if we hold fast to sharing his word, and if we are working with God, then he'll hold us close to him, and we'll work through with him too.